This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor and members of the military and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at GovX.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. Welcome to episode 356 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Dr. Rungan Chatterjee. Now, Dr. Chatterjee is a physician in the UK. He is a podcaster, an author, and a TV celebrity. So, so many angles and perspectives on the world of wellness. So, we discuss a host of topics from vitamin D, sunlight exposure, nutrition, gut biome, the four pillars of health, the importance of sleep, and so many other areas. 
Before we go to that interview, as I say, every single week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating really does elevate this podcast and make us more visible for people looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, whether within an organization. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Enjoy. So Dr. Chatterjee, I just want to start by saying thank you so much. I know we've been trying to get this put together and I am extremely excited about this conversation. So welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. James, it's it's my absolute pleasure. And I just want to say that I do get approached quite a lot um, for people to, to come and talk and be on podcasts. But the way you connected with me, the way you wrote your message really jumped out at me. And I know it's taken a while to, to make this work, but I really just want to say thank you because I think the way we communicate with people really makes a difference to the outcome we get. And you were very respectful, but you really wrote a thoughtful message as well. So I just want to appreciate you for that right at the start of this conversation. Well, thank you so much. It's the first time someone's going to comment it on, on the email, but I think what made me so passionate about connecting with you and, and and basically everyone else on this podcast is I see the mission that you're on and obviously your journey is through medicine, but we definitely align as far as our philosophies. So I've seen the, the guests that you've had on and the conversations you have with Johan Hari and um, Sabrina Cohen-Hatton um, and uh, Gabor Mate and people like that. And I, I see that same mission, that, that prevention, that, that, uh, philosophy that there are solutions to some of these problems. So I'm very excited about this conversation. Oh, fantastic. Me too. Right. So very first question, where on planet earth are we finding you today? Okay. So I am in my garden in South Manchester in my new podcast studio, uh, which has been built over lockdown and is where I do my recordings from. So yeah, I'm, uh, it's a beautiful British summer's day, um, and yeah, I'm delighted to spend it chatting to you. Fantastic. Well, just as a side note, how was uh, the, the last four or five months um, for you specifically? Yeah, look, uh, you know, unquestionably, these are very unusual times compared to what most of us are used to. And I think, you know, I've ha I've had a... A variety of different emotions, if I'm honest, at various times. I think if I'm completely honest on a personal level, the first few months of lockdown were pretty special for me and my family. Now, you've got to be really sensitive with how you talk about this because I, I fully recognize that for much of society, it was really it was really difficult, you know, job pressure, financial pressure. Um, people close to them maybe getting sick, a lot of frontline workers, you know, really feeling pressure and stress in their job. So I'm not being disrespectful to that. I fully understand and appreciate that. But on a personal level, I feel that it was, it was great to connect and have, you know, two or three meals a day with my children, with my wife, 
the fact that I wasn't traveling around doing lots of other things, which are all about health promotion. But actually, I was in my own backyard, actually spending more time with the people that meant the world to me and still do mean the world to me. So that was an incredible learning for me personally. Professionally, you know, what I saw with patients who I was seeing remotely was, you know, a huge increase in anxiety and stress and worry and depression. And, you know, that was very hard because, as I'm sure many people listening to this show, James, you know, we're trying to do, we're, we're, we're all trying to help people. We're all trying to help society run more smoothly. We're all trying to help people um, with their well-being. And I find it really hard to see how a lot of people are really struggling from the world outside them changing. And I think there's quite an interesting philosophical point there because many of us are very reliant on the world around us, our external environment. So we think when that's okay, we'll be okay. But what I learned or what I relearned personally and also what I've been talking to a lot of my patients about is you can't control the outside environment. You know, the only constant in life is change. And therefore, we, what we really want to do is try and get good at dealing with change and try to get good at managing and controlling what we can control. Because if you go through life, you know, allowing the external world to dictate how you feel, and I, I will still do this, so I'm not, I'm not preaching about this as if I have this all sorted. I just feel we've got to really focus on what we can control rather than what we can't control. And I couldn't agree more. And it's a great, um, you know, perspective coming from yourself, not only from a physician's element, but obviously the, the platform that you have as well. And I think that there's some people that have realized that you're saying, even with, with the traveling that have, they've commuted to an office and sat in a cubicle and done exactly what they could have done in their own home. So I think there's that efficiency element that has revolutionized some people's lives in a positive way. But I think that there's also a, a lot of people that realize how much they missed human communication that tribe whether it was a you know a group in a gym that they went to or you know their their class at school so what i'm hoping i'm sure we're probably going to expand on a lot in this conversation is that we have been given a lot of lessons we've been given lessons on on you know nutrition on on the farming practices and the ill health maybe of the uk of the us we've been uh, lessons on on mental health lessons on the environment and i'm hoping that we're not going to be so distracted by this virus itself that we miss the lessons and go back to the way we did it before. Yeah, I think that's a really key point, James. I think the truth is no matter what we had to go through and what we are still going through during lockdown, I think, I think it's fair to say that there's lessons to be learned for all of us, right? Um, that of course we all have had different pressures depending on where you live, whether you had a garden or a backyard or whether you didn't. You know, of course, your experience of lockdown is going to be very different. If you've got a lot of living space and a garden, actually, you know what, and the weather's good as it was in the UK for the first two months of lockdown, your experience is going to be very different from someone in a studio apartment in the center of London or in the center of New York where you have no space to get outside, right? So, so your experience is going to be di very different. But I, but I think no matter what your experience is, 
we can all still learn something. What did we like? What did we not like? What can we change going forward? And, and what you mentioned about us missing our tribes, I really think that's, I think that's been playing out throughout lockdown. Um, like I've got a good friend who, you know, is probably a bit of a loner, likes being by themselves, you know, doesn't really get out and connect with that many tribes but interestingly would often go and sit in coffee shops and do some work. And she said to me, like, you know what? I thought I was a loner, but she's just missing being in a coffee shop, maybe not chatting to anyone, but just knowing there's other humans around her. And I, I found that really insightful to, to hear that, that, wow, even if you're a loner, you still want some human connection, you know, even if it's just the background noise around you that there's other humans around. So I think, I think that's super interesting. I tell you one thing, James, that I've been thinking about a lot, but it was really highlighted this week. You know, I'm very concerned with the, the negatives of lockdown. So of course, a lot of people are making the case for lockdown. And, you know, there's, there's opinions on both sides of that, whether it was the right move, whether it is the right move or not. But let's be really clear. There is going to be a significant consequence of all these lockdowns. Um, people are going to be more isolated. Uh, I know suicide rates are going up. Uh, mental health problems are going up. And, and these can be harder to quantify in the same way as a as a daily death rate from COVID. You know, that's something immediate and something we can see and measure. But it's very hard to measure in the same way those kind of longer term consequences. And that does concern me. And, and actually this week in the UK or, or last week, actually, James, uh, swimming pools had opened up. Uh, so indoor swimming pools had opened up with various social distancing measures. And I, I've only been once and I, I booked my slots and I went and on the way out, I spoke to the receptionist behind the screen and he said, hey, look, doc, can you just tell me what, what, what's, you know, what, what's your take of what's going on? So I had a little chat with him about what I felt about some of the things I'm talking about now. And I said, what have you, what have you found? And he said to me, he said, I've been working in this leisure center for 20 years and I'm really worried. I said, why? He said, I'm seeing people come in now particularly people above the age of 55 or 60, they're like different people. They're withdrawn. They're very scared. They're fearful. They're not talking as much. And, and I found that so interesting, James, that this is someone who has worked in a sports facility, you know, a local community leisure facility where there's, you know, uh, football, uh, indoor football or indoor soccer courts. There's swimming pools, there's martial arts classes, there's a gymnasium. And he's just saying people are different. And I think this is a story that's not getting amplified enough in the media, in the press, that actually human beings are social animals. We've always been social animals. And we've got to be careful that there is going to be a consequence, there already is a consequence, of keeping people locked up and not allowing them to interact. So I know this is a very political point and I don't want to make it too political, but I just want to say as a, as a doctor, I'm concerned about some of those negative impacts that we're likely, not likely, that I think we will see of lockdown. 
Yeah, well, it's it's a shame because people do refer to it as political, and and in my opinion, it's not. You know, there's two sides that are screaming at each other. We're perfectly aware of them. They they make themselves very known, but then there's the middle ground of normal people that are in, especially in the wellness space, that are you know looking at this saying, well, you know, you, you keep ignoring the underlying issues. That's something we could have been addressing now for five months. The obesity epidemic, you know, diabetes, mental ill health, and and even with the I'll use the word fear mongering. It's definitely been that in, in the US. To me, as someone who's been in the wellness space now for several decades, I'm looking at this and look through the lens of, well, if we want to give people the best chance of surviving this, we need to maximize their resilience. And by pumping this fear, I'm not talking about selfishly, you know, not wearing masks and breathing over people, but, but creating such a, a focus on the fear element, I think that we're making people more susceptible to to getting ill. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, look, what, what are we talking about here? We're talking about our immune system, right? So to fight anything that we're exposed to, we want a well-functioning immune system. And there are many ways to support good immune system health. Okay, so... One of them, well, one thing that does not support good immune system health is stress and fear. We know that stress and fear suppress the ability of our immune system to adequately respond and react to perceived threats. There are multiple studies showing that people exposed to the same virus, let's say the same um, rhinovirus or, or, or what's often called the common cold virus, right? Depending on their state of stress, depending on how much sleep they've had, it completely changes how likely they are to get symptoms. So, you know, no study that I know of has been done yet on that with respect to the novel coronavirus that has shut the world down this year. But we can apply some common sense principles. If our immune system works better, whatever threat we face, whether it's this virus or another virus, we are going to be able to better mount an, an effective immune response if our immune system is working better. So what are those things? Well, I've spoken about four pillars of health before. That's basically what my first book was about. Let's, let's go through them. Sleep. We know sleep directly impacts the immune system. So for example, if you are sleeping seven to eight hours sleep per night, as opposed to five hours per night, the activity of a type of cell called natural killer cells can be as much as 50% reduced if you're only having five hours sleep. Well, let's just think about that. What are natural killer cells? Natural killer cells are part of your body's, what's called your innate immune system, right? They're part of the immune system you're born with. And what do natural killer cells do? They help fight off infections. They do other things as well, but they help fight off viruses. So if you can improve your sleep, let's say from five hours to seven hours, the amount of natural killer cells you have going around your body may increase, may double, right? So, that, and, and it doesn't, you know, we don't need a scientific trial to tell us, well, that's clearly going to be beneficial for whatever threats, whatever infection you're going to face. So, you know, we can focus on sleep. Stress, as I've just mentioned, when you're highly stressed, you suppress immune system activity and therefore uh, stress may well make you more susceptible to actually getting infected or coming down with complications. Uh, third pillar, movement, right? We know that physical activity 
particularly if it's sort of moderate, um, can really, really help balance the immune system and have more effective immune system function. Same goes for food, the fourth pillar. Um, but, I mean, they aren't necessarily the order in which I, I, I sort of write about them. But if people just think about food, movement, sleep, and stress, like these four key pillars of health that we actually that have, you know, what I love about these four pillars, not only do they have a huge impact on how we feel, what our health is, how our immune system functions, there are also things that a lot of us have quite a high degree of control over, right? So I like focusing on things that people can do. So for example, air pollution, yes, is going to be, it is causing a lot of health problems in society, but there's not that much many of us can do about it. Sure, we can change you know, the car we drive, we can cycle more, we cannot contribute to it, but by and large, we can't do that much about air pollution. So I prefer to focus with people on things they can do. And I would ask everyone listening to this right now to ask themselves on those four pillars, food, movement, sleep, and stress, which of those pillars do they feel they need the most work in? And I would simply start by, by changing one small thing in that pillar. And what we often do, James, is we go to our favorite area. So let's say you know, we're really into our diet and our diet's already pretty good but we're only sleeping five hours a night, we often will make, try and make our diet 5% even better and go, oh, you know what? I can make my diet a little bit even better than this. But we're, we're actually much better off making our weak areas a little bit better than making our strong areas a little bit stronger. And I think that's a key message I want people to take from this. What is your blind spot? For me, James, it's stress. You know, honestly, my foods, my movements, it's, it's pretty good because I've been working on it for years, so I built up some good practices and some good habits. My sleep is not too bad, but you know, honestly, for me, I'm going to get the most bang for my buck by spending five or ten minutes a day just trying to manage my stress. And I'd ask everyone listening to figure out what is that pillar for them that they could start making small changes in. Oh, and it's such a powerful topic that you hit and you, you talked about sleep first. So a lot of the people listening to this, whether they're in the US, the UK, wherever they are around the world are shift workers. So whether it's a firefighter, whether it's, you know, a member of the military or someone in the ER. Um, and when COVID first came about, and I've been talking about this for four years now, it's one of the, the underlying issues, I think, behind the physical disease that kills our men and women and the mental disease that kills our men and women. But the people that the world leaned into, the frontline personnel, to me, the way a lot of their work weeks look, whether it's a junior doctor in the NHS or whether it's a firefighter in, in the US, those are some of the most overworked, sleep-deprived men and women that we have. So again, lessons learned from this. We've seen, sadly, a lot of doctors, nurses, you know, firefighters, police officers, medics, pass away during COVID. And I hope that we can reframe not only, you know, my professions, but obviously the civilian population, but understand how important that pillar sleep is to every other element of your health. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you bringing that up, James. And it's it's great to hear that you've been talking about this for, for a number of years now. As, you know, many people who are trying to help promote health have, it's 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 tricky because 
you know, if you are working shifts, your circadian rhythm, which is your body's natural daily rhythm that helps get you up in the morning and helps you wind down before hopefully you fall into a deep, relaxing sleep every night, that gets affected by shift work. And it's it's really a very sad thing in society that the some of the professions that look after us the most in our time of need, whether it's you know firefighters, healthcare workers, even people doing security um, in, in offices or in hospitals or wherever, you know, these are the guys and women who, whose circadian rhythms and whose sleep quality are probably being affected the most. And they're doing some of the most important roles in society. And I think that's something we should really be acknowledging that actually a lot of people in these professions are literally, are, are, are going beyond the call of duty to help society as a whole. And I think we should be very grateful and thankful of all the work they are doing. Uh, I'm very proud to be in the medical profession. Um, and I think most people who are doing something in one of these professions are very proud of the work they do, even though it often comes at a personal cost. And, and I think that is sad. Um, but I would also say that although these things make shift, make it challenging, make it more challenging to sleep well and get into a routine, it's not impossible. And I always try and leave things optimistically with people. Okay? There are things that people can do once you turn your attention to the fact that I'm going to start prioritizing this. And I think with something like sleep, for example, James, I would say whether you're a shift worker or not, one of the big problems is that we don't prioritize it. So even if a patient of mine or someone listening to my podcast or, or, or whoever it is I'm communicating with, once they even start to prioritize sleep, often that makes a big difference. If they, you know, in the same way that they might change their diet in January, it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to change my sleep diet now. I'm going to actually work on my sleep. And it's amazing with sleep how simple little things can make a very big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's, an area that I, I think everyone needs to understand. And if you get the individual to understand the, the sleep hygiene element, you know, what you can do, as you said, whether it's temperature, whether it's ambient light, whether it's your routine prior to going to bed and then see the benefits, then as an employer understanding, well, maybe we need to change the way, you know, the work week, for example, if we're getting people that are out in the streets all night, every night, maybe they, need a little extra time to recover to catch up on their sleep. So I think whether it's the employee or the employer, I think sleep education is important for all of us for, for overall wellness. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's amazing how a lot of us in the wellness space forget that when we've been talking about this for a long time, a lot of people, I think, make the understandable mistake that everyone already knows it now. But they don't. I'm sure you get it all the time, whether you're posting on Instagram or on your podcast. The same tips often that you might have said before, someone will hear and go, I had no idea. I tried that, James, and it improved my sleep. And I never get tired of talking about this stuff because there's always going to be somebody out there who's hearing it for the first time or somebody who's heard it five times already and either hasn't made the change or weren't ready to make the change. Like it's not a one hit wonder. It's not that you, for everyone, it's not that you just hear it and go, oh, is that all I have to do? Okay, great. I'm going to now sleep perfectly every night. No, 
actually real life often gets in the way and we often need, myself included, need to hear or remind ourselves of the same messages over and over again. Or it may be that you had this sorted and lit before COVID hit. And then maybe your life changed overnight and stress levels went up. Or maybe there was stress in your family. Or maybe you were trying to juggle your work and homeschool your kids. So, you know, life never stays static. Of course, we've seen that to a very extreme degree in the last few months. But the principle is always the same, James. Life is never static. It's never the same. And actually, the the podcast I've just released yesterday uh, was with someone called Julia Samuel, and it's on change. I've actually, you should really talk to her. I think she's a wonderful, she's one of the UK's leading psychotherapists. And we really explored this whole idea that change is the change and death are the only two inevitables in life, right? Change is going to happen. And so we never get to a perfect state of health and well being. I've, I've made this mistake in my own life before thinking, oh, I've got this sorted now, right? I'm, I've, I've got these four pillars working. Well, you know what? Life doesn't stay static. Something will change. Your work pressure will change. There'll be maybe pressures from your children or one of them's not doing so well at school or an elderly relative um, doesn't do so well. Like this, this is what happened to me. At the start of lockdown, right, I remember that my mum, who lives nearby to me, who lives by, by herself since my dad died seven years ago, she had a fall. And... I remember going around, it was, it took a few hours to sort of pick her up and it was just incredibly stressful because people wanted to get her into hospital and I did not want her to go into hospital because, you know, COVID had literally just hit in a big way a week or two ago. So everyone was still trying to understand what it meant, you know, what we were hearing on the news, uh, certainly me as a doctor, what the chief medical officer was saying. And I was like, I really don't want my mum going to hospital at the moment. So I went and slept on her floor in a bedroom for maybe three to five days just to make sure I was around, that she was okay. And of course, my sleep went down. My stress went through the roof, even though I knew all the things I should do. You know, I've written three books on this stuff, right? I know with my rational brain what I should be doing. But at that time, there was so much stress in my life that I wasn't able to apply them all. And therefore, I was tired. I was stressed. I was a bit more reactive. That's okay. We don't need to beat ourselves up about that. That was like, okay, cool. I'm going through a stressful time. This is the way it is at the moment. I'll do what I can. But as soon as life starts to calm down again, I'll try and make a few small tweaks to get back on track. And, you know, I think I think it's just important that we don't beat ourselves up and we're kind to ourselves. Okay, you know, if you're listening to this show and you are, a military responder or a hospital responder, and you've had to deal with pressures and stress and grief and work pressures and home pressures. And you know what? Your sleep has gone off and your stress has gone up a bit. That's okay, right? We're all human. That's okay. But maybe as we go through this conversation, hopefully you might hear a couple of things that you think, hey, you know what? I reckon I could apply that. I reckon I might be able to start doing that and it's these small changes can really, really make big changes. So I just really want people to, to be kind to themselves and not beat themselves up too much. 
Brilliant. No, I love that. And we really want to explore the kind of preventative holistic element of, of your philosophy. So you mentioned your mom and dad. So going now to your early life, I'd love to kind of hear the journey that you took into medicine. So where, where were you actually born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. Okay, James. So my dad was born in India and he was an Indian immigrant to the UK in 1962. So in the 1960s, the UK government had a shortage of doctors and they actively recruited doctors from the Indian subcontinent. And my dad was one of the many doctors who came over. Uh, they, you know, he absolutely came over for better opportunity and a desire to um, build a better life for him, his children and his wider family. So dad came out in early, the early 1960s. My mum came in the sort of early 1970s. And so I was born in the centre of Manchester in the north of England uh, in the late 70s, right? So I was born and brought up in the UK. I've got one older brother. He's three years older than me. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I'm a father of two young kids, a 10-year-old boy, a seven-year-old, seven-year-old girl, and what I've really seen, James, as a father, and also I, I filmed quite a few BBC documentaries where I go around the country and spend a lot of time with families to see if I can help them improve their health. And I've really become acutely aware that for children, what you get exposed to often determines what you think is possible. And, you know, the truth is my dad, all his friends were doctors. Right. So as a kid, any social gathering what, what to do with the family, I was surrounded by doctors. And you know what? In that group, any of the kids older than me, at least one person in each family would end up becoming a doctor or going to medical school. So if I'm honest, that was my norm, James, growing up. I was just surrounded by doctors and kids going to medical school. So a lot of people, a lot of people think in society, oh, you know, wow, you got into med school and you know, I'm not sort of downplaying that, but I'll, I'll be honest. And I, I say I had an advantage because that was my norm. So I just didn't think it was anything special or anything abnormal to apply and get into med school because that's all I saw around me. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't want to be a doctor. Uh, I've often spoke to my mother about this and she said, you always had this caring side, like you were always very good at empathizing and nurturing people and caring for people. I think that's what led me into medicine. But I think even within medicine, I think I was dissatisfied for a number of years without even realizing it. I started off, I went to Edinburgh Medical School. I did an immunology degree also while I was up there. So I finished with a medical degree and an immunology degree. And I thought I was going to work in hospital. So I did all my specialist training and exams. And I was going to specialize in kidney medicine. But I, something just didn't sit with me, James, if I'm honest, something just didn't feel right. I always, I was always interested in people. I was always interested in how different parts of the body are linked. And I thought, I don't really want to spend the rest of my career just focusing on one area. I want to see everything. I want to see every person. I want to see different walks of life. I want, I want to see every organ system. So I took the step to move from that to general practice and my dad, I, I must be honest, he was very surprised and confused as to why I would have done all those specialist exams, or certainly the first batch of them, and then actually leave to do general practice. I, I remember 
a few maybe heated conversations with my father over that. Um, but I did, and, and I love general practice because I got to see everything. I got to see all kinds of symptoms. And but but a few years in, James, I was again feeling dissatisfied. I, I the end of one day, I looked at my list of patients, and I, I saw close to fifty patients that day. And I went down the list and I said, Rongan, how many people have you really helped today? And honestly, I thought I've helped about 20% of my patients. I really helped them. The other 80%, sure, I've done something. I've listened attentively, which I think is very powerful for people in general. I might have sent them for tests. I might have given them a pill to suppress their symptoms. But by and large, I felt I was just putting a sticking plaster on their problems and not really either understanding myself or helping them understand how to really get on top of what was going on. And that dissatisfaction, along with a personal experience with my son, I don't know if you've read the story on my son or not, um, but I mean, you know, well, my son's 10 now. When he, when he was six months old, my wife and I were on a holiday in France um, and you know, essentially he, he had a convulsion. He stopped moving. We, we took him to the ER. The doctors were super worried. He got transferred down the valley to a different hospital. Um, we thought we might lose him. And it, and it turned out that he had what's called a hypocalcemic convulsion. So he had very low levels of calcium in his blood that was secondary to a vitamin D deficiency. So he had no vitamin D in his body, and as a consequence, his calcium dropped, which ended up being him having a convulsion. That was a very scary time, and modern medicine saved his life for sure. But what was really interesting is once everything had returned to normal with his levels, it was just like, okay, you can go now. And I said, okay, but what about the implications of that? And there was nothing. It was like, oh, well, we fix all the levels now. And I was thinking, well, could this be if vitamin D is important for the immune system and my son's got bad eczema, could it be that this in some way has contributed to that? And nobody had any answers. And I thought, James, I, not only did I, I think, how has this happened? I, I felt a lot of guilt because at that time, you know, I was, uh, you know, looking externally, I'd gone to one of Europe's most prestigious medical schools. I'd done specialist exams. I had an immunology degree. Yet I wasn't able to prevent my own son from nearly dying from something completely preventable. And I, rightly or wrongly, but clearly wrongly, but I felt a lot of guilt. I thought, how have I let this happen? And I made a, I made a vow to myself, and I've not told this story in a long time. It's actually bringing up a lot of emotions. Um, but I made a vow to myself, James, that I'm going to get my son back to full fitness and full health as if this had never happened. And I started reading and researching. I started to look up vitamin D. Think, why do the immune system, the gut microbiome? I started to travel the world. I went to go on various courses to learn from experts in various areas. And as I learned more, I started to apply those principles with my son. He was getting better and thriving. Apply the same principles with myself, my wife, my daughter, my wider family. And then also the same principles with my patients. And I, I realized that actually a lot of my 
you know, I was getting people better in a way that I never had managed to before. I was prescribing a lot less medication than I'd ever needed to before. And a lot of it came down to lifestyle. And I thought, well, why as a doctor, do I not know any of this stuff? Why was I not taught any of this stuff? But once you know something, you can't unknow it, right? You can't, you can't just pretend you don't know it and go back to the way you used to do things. So really my son uh, nearly dying was a hugely transformative experience for me personally in my own life, but also professionally. It really has changed the course of my entire career. I don't think I'd be writing books, doing podcasts, making TV shows if that hadn't happened. Of course, I may have done, but I don't think I would have done. So it's it's literally been life-changing. I think the fact that I thought I was only helping 20% of my patients um, was also significant. And I think the other piece is that when I was at medical school, my dad, who was a consultant physician here in the UK, he suddenly got unwell and, you know, ultimately what happened, he had to retire suddenly from work. He got diagnosed with lupus, which is an autoimmune condition. He had really bad kidney failure and he was on dialysis for 15 years. So I cared for dads. I, I moved back to where I grew up. I was in Edinburgh, but I moved back to South Manchester to help my mother and my brother care for my dad until dad died seven years ago. And I think all those sort of three things have hugely influenced me as a person has hugely affected the way I practice medicine I think you know I'm sure many people listening have been carers or are carers and I think when you've been on the other side and you've seen what it's like caring for someone day in day out seven days a week 365 days a year and you've been waiting in hospitals worried scared not getting answers you see things in a very different way and I would like to think that those experiences have made me a much more compassionate and empathetic doctor. Well, firstly, thank you so much for telling the story. I didn't mean to pull emotion out of you, but I think that's that's the main reason why I started this too. I'd buried five, uh, excuse me, buried six firefighters um, over two years, and like yourself, that was kind of my moment to look back and have just a whole bunch of aha moments. I think of myself as, as um, a paramedic. And here in America, we're firefighters and EMTs or medics as well. And all of the cardiac arrest patients that we lost that were our age. And, you know, the wife or the husband hands you a big, big bag of medication, which in the doctor's office, I'm sure his blood pressure was 120 over 80. I'm sure his blood sugar was 88 but that just changed the metric. It didn't affect the human being. And they still died with a tube in their throat while we were pounding on their chest. So it's it's very powerful hearing you talk about your son. And I can absolutely relate to, you know, the the men and women we've lost. Is a, the, What makes it so heart-wrenching is when you realize that it is preventable. And that's what I want to explore now. But so many people, I think even more so in the U- U.S. and the U.K., are sold this facade that these pills are going to fix you. And that's, like you said, not the case. It's a Band-Aid. It's a plaster. It's just addressing symptoms, but you haven't addressed the underlying issue at all. So I want to explore that whole thing, but I'm intrigued about your son specifically. So what what holistic element were you able to find or, or what, what underlying factor can you attribute to that low vitamin D? And then, and then how did you fix that with an infant? Yeah, so... I mean, thank you for for sharing your own experience, James, there as well. Really, really interesting to hear. And I can't imagine what 
that must have felt like uh, when you know you're, you're burying colleagues of, of yours. Um, but but with respect to my son, it's quite complex, really. But to to try and simplify, essentially. Vitamin D is quite well known in the wellness space now, but I can tell you seven, eight years ago, it really wasn't. Certainly most doctors had no real idea about it. That is, I would challenge anyone who disagrees with me on that to give me some data to support that's not the case because I spoke to so many experts and specialists and GPs and nobody had a clue. In fact, two weeks before this happened to my son, I was in my practice, in my medical practice where I was working in a place called Oldham. And I was seeing, starting to see patients who were very low in vitamin D and were symptomatic, all kinds of, whether it was fatigue, whether it was bone pain. You know, this wasn't like overt deficiency where they had none at all. It was just what I would call suboptimal deficiency where it was just a little bit low. But actually when we addressed it, other symptoms got better. And I started to look into trials on vitamin D and heart failure. I thought, okay, there's quite a lot here. And I was thinking, why, why do we not test it more? Why do I not really know that much about it? And I, I was spending a lot of time researching it. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if my kids should be on vitamin D. Because, you know, for people, I know this is an audio podcast. So I, my parents are Indian background. So I've got brown skin. And vitamin D sure many people know, but just in case they don't, by and large, we get most of it from the sun. Our skin converts the, the sunlight into the active form of vitamin D. Now, if you have darker skin, you need proportionally more sunlight exposure to make the same amount of vitamin D. So, you know, the, the melanin in our skin that gives us protection from the sun also makes it harder to extract that vitamin D. So, I phoned my wife from my practice one day. I said, hey, babe, look, I know you're going to see the, uh, you know, you and my son are going to see the doctor this afternoon. I actually think he should be on vitamin D. Could you just check and have that conversation with the doctor? Now, I have asked myself a million times why I didn't just make that decision myself. But as many medical professionals who might be listening to the show know, certainly here in the UK, the GMC, the, the General Medical Council, actively discourage us to make decisions around health on our own family. It's considered, you know, not best practice. So I thought, you know, I'm not gonna make this call at the moment, but let me just see what he says. So I sent my wife a protocol that I found and the doctor actually said to her, you could have just made this up and, and typed this up on Word and basically gave it back to her and said, he doesn't need anything. You're breastfeeding, he doesn't have to do anything. So she was pretty offended with that consultation and I thought I'd get around to it. I had no idea that we were two weeks away from my son collapsing and having a convulsion. I wish I'd changed things now, but in some ways, had I not, and had I, had I started supplementing him then, maybe this never would have happened, which of course would have been a good thing, but maybe it wouldn't have been. Maybe I learned so much from it that I was able to better, I was better able to help him. So the, the first thing I learned was how important vitamin D supplementation can be for certain populations. And there was actually guidance in the UK at the time that every child up to the age of five years should be on vitamin D drops. And I'm thinking, well, if that's guidance, how come I don't know this? How come my colleagues don't know this? How come when I phone my doctor friends, nobody knows about this? And this may surprise you, James, that rickets 
what was known as a Victorian illness, rickets, is on the rise in the UK year on year. Really? Something that, yeah, which is just ridiculous, really, when we think about it. It's so easy to prevent. So anyway, in terms of what I did with my son, we optimized vitamin D. Uh, we did various things with diet to improve how the gut microbiome works. We've been very diligent with all aspects of lifestyle, including sleep, um, you know, and it's what we actually went through in terms of all the details around this case are probably too complex for the purposes of the show. But essentially, on my journey to find out more, I learned just how powerful lifestyle can be for a whole variety of different health conditions. And I just want to say, when we talk about lifestyle, right, I understand that it can be hard for people and that for some people find it easier to make lifestyle changes than others. But we talk about lifestyle as only prevention. And I really want to expand the conversation because lifestyle, yes, works beautifully well as prevention. But in many cases, you can also use lifestyle as part of the treatment. So even when things have gone quite bad, even when you've got a diagnosis of something, sometimes making changes to your lifestyle can reduce symptoms or help you reduce how much medication you need to take. So it's not just a prevention piece. It can also be a treatment and a management piece as well. Absolutely. And I want to explore that because I think that's that's such a a hard concept for people to understand. They're told, well, you know, you're you're a diabetic. So you're going to be taking these pills the rest of your life. And and understanding that no, you can actually reverse that with um Nutrition, for example, is a very, very powerful element. But we're just staying on the vitamin D for a second. It's interesting during this whole phase that we've all gone through where, you know, the immunity is, is so important for everyone. As we mentioned, a lot of people have been staying in home and not having the exposure to sunlight. And then even as you were mentioning, um, you know, the East Asian, um, communities, just some of the, the traditional dress. And I'm thinking about it now coming from, a very hot climate to gloomy England, you know, and now wearing, you know, the particular clothing that they wear, you kind of got to take a step back and look at that too. Are you actually getting the exposure? Here in Florida, it's really hot. So there's two things that happen. Firstly, everyone hides inside and goes in the AC. And secondly, there's this, which I, I have to question as well, this whole element of you see the sun, you're immediately going to get skin cancer, which, or, you know, you got to lather yourself in, in, um, you know, sun lotion, which I still personally question, well, which is actually contributing to the cancer? Is it the sun or is it the lotion? But regardless, people are scared of being out in the sun sometimes. So I think that contributes to the low vitamin D as well. Yeah. I think you've raised some, some, some really good points there, James. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more about sun cream and what it actually does over the coming years. One thing I think it's safe to say now that what a lot of people don't realize is that they go outside in the sun and they've got sun cream on, that will block the conversion, that will block how much vitamin D you make. So one thing I think is it's a pretty safe and ethical recommendation is you know, aim for at least 10 or 15 minutes sun exposure without sun cream on. And I often talk to my patients about that. You know, nobody wants a patient to burn. But of course, some people need to be super careful. But I think a lot of people have become so scared of the sun that they won't step outside their house for either them or their children 
before the sun cream has covered every ounce of visible skin. And I'm like, look, get out a little bit, get a bit of that sun exposure. And then if you wish to use sun cream, then put the sun cream on, but at least get that vitamin D conversion. Um, but you know, that, that's a wider point there, James, that goes beyond vitamin D. We're seeing just how important light, sunlight, but just natural light per se is for our health and well-being. You know, human beings, the only thing probably that has been consistent in all of evolution is that the sun will rise in the morning and go down in the evening. And that is how our circadian rhythms operates, right? Light in the day, in the morning gets us up. That symbolizes the start of the day. And the sun goes down, night falls, that indicates it's time to sleep, right? That has always been a constant. And it's only in the modern world now that we can actually play, you know, mess around with that. And actually, many of us are brightening up our evenings with screens and devices. And we're sort of make and when we're dimming our days by staying inside. So we're actually reversing how we've actually evolved to live. And let's Let's think about that practically. So we've mentioned sleep and how important that is for health. Well, let's think about that. A lot of people are thinking about what they do just before beds or their caffeine exposure or how much caffeine they're drinking. Okay, these are very important things. We can come to that. But a lot of people aren't thinking about their light exposure. We know very clearly that if you get 15 or 20 minutes natural light exposure in the mornings, that can help to set your circadian rhythm. That can help you sleep at nights. Right? A lot of people aren't thinking about that. So in my first book, I said to people, it was one of my recommendations, and I said, you might want to have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee in your backyard or in your garden in the morning rather than in your kitchen or in your bedroom just to get a bit of that light exposure. Now, the other to, to really bring this to life for people, let's think about lights. Right? So light is measured in units called lux. Right? So a completely dark room where you can't see your fingers moving in front of your face would be zero lux. If you go outside on a sunny day, let's say you're in Florida, right? Or my perception as a Brit of what Florida would be like. Um, you go outside for 20 minutes on a sunny day, you're going to make around, you're going to be exposed to about 30,000 lux of light, right? If you go outside on a cloudy British day for... 15, 20 minutes, right? So it's cloudy, it's overcast, there's no sun exposure. You're going to be exposed to 10,000 lux. If you go into most offices and most indoor environments in the US or the UK, you're probably getting at a maximum 500, 600, maybe 700 lux, right? So being indoor, even being outside on a cloudy day gives you maybe 20 times the amount of exposure that you get even in a brightly lit indoor room. So we have designed, we've evolved to be outside. So getting outside, whenever you can, but ideally in the morning or at the very latest lunchtime, is so valuable to help people with their circadian rhythm, with their sleep. But also there's some new data, James, which again is really exciting because a lot of us are aware that looking at screens before bed and it's very hard to resist that. I get it. I, I sometimes fall prey to that. That can affect the secretion of a hormone called melatonin, which can absolutely delay your circadian, put your circadian rhythm back by maybe three hours, right? It's it, literally light changes your hormones. If a drug we were prescribing did that, there would be a side effect label. Yet many of us are looking at our iPhones 
or our smartphones right in front of our faces in bed just before we fall asleep. And to think that's not having an impact on our health and our ability to sleep is very, very short-sighted. In fact, James, when my first book came out, one of my best mates in America, a guy called James, he phoned me and said, listen, mate, uh, I love the book. I love what's in it. But, you know, the stuff about screens, you know, I feel sorry for people who can't look at screens before bed. I look at screens every night in bed and I'm absolutely fine. I was like, okay, fine. There was nothing really to add to that. A few weeks later, he bought um, something called an Aura Ring, uh, which is probably, I'm not saying people should buy this at all, um, but I'm just saying he, he chose to buy something called an Aura Ring, which is a very good sleep tracking device. And he phoned me a few weeks later and he said, wrong and wrong and oh my word, I've just discovered something. I said, what? He says, anytime I look at my screen in bed and then when I look at my data in the morning, I haven't gone into anywhere near the same levels of deep sleep as when I don't look at my screen. So a lot of people may have their eyes closed and be technically sleeping, but what's the quality of their sleep like? And that changed his behavior to the point now where he won't look at a screen for one hour before bed. And the only other point I wanted to make, James, on that is there's some new research which is suggesting that if you have a lot of natural light exposure in the day, you kind of buffer yourself and insulate yourself from some of the negative impacts of looking at a screen late into the evening. So although I'm not advising people to do that, if you spent your whole day or three hours outside in the day, if you're lucky enough to be able to do that, you might get away with looking at your screen in the evening in, in a very different way than had you spent all day indoors. Yeah, and, and I can attest personally. Like I know that when I've done that, it has actually it just keeps me awake, like you were saying. It's not even so much the effects on the sleep as the fact that you're losing sleep. You're losing hours of sleep. And one of the, the tools that I found that's effective, and I, I don't, I try not to look at my phone, but you know, we might watch TV as we wind down. We still have electric lights in the house, um, is blue blocking glasses. And I found that very, very effective. Yeah. I, I also have some blue blocking glasses. I, I wear something called blue blocks. I think they're incredible. And, if I am on screens in the evening and, you know, I'm human like everyone else, you know, so it's all very well knowing this, but we're all, you know, I, I'm subject to the same pressures that anyone else is subject to. And if I have to be on my screen in the evening or if I perceive I have to, then I'll put on my red glasses and it makes a big, big difference. So, yeah, just just I, I hope there's a bit of a few take homes there for people to start applying in their lives. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to transition to one more area and then we'll go to some closing questions. Obviously, we'll make sure we talk about the books too. Um, you mentioned about looking at lifestyle choices, not just for prevention, but for cure as well. And that's an area I want to expand on. So without loading the question at all, what are some of the common health issues that you see with your patients that you absolutely can reverse using better lifestyle choices? Yeah. So look, just to be super clear at the top, like it's not always possible to reverse things. Okay. So I'm not trying to sell something to you that is, uh, you know, like a miracle. Sometimes you can reverse conditions, but other times you can manage them better. You can reduce pain. You can reduce symptoms. You can sometimes come off medication. You can sometimes only reduce medication. But I've seen this over and over again. So an obvious one would be type 2 diabetes. I think 
you know, in 2015, when my first BBC documentary came out, I showed, I demonstrated the case of a lady who I diagnosed her with type 2 diabetes on the show. And within 30 days, I'd helped her put her blood test into a level that was no longer diabetic. It was probably one of the first cases on mainstream primetime television where it was shown that this was possible. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, criticism at the time saying this is unproven. You know, type 2 diabetes is a chronic, irreversible condition. It was like, well, that may be the common narrative, but actually as many doctors and many healthcare professionals around the world are demonstrating now, it is possible to put type 2 diabetes into remission in a lot of cases by some small, consistent changes to our lifestyle. Now, sometimes you can't put it into full remission. Sometimes you can just reduce how many drugs you're going to take. But even that, that is a very... Uh, attainable goal and a very worthwhile goal. You know, if you, instead of taking four different medications three times a day, if you're only having to take one of those medications twice a day, I tell you, most patients will take that and go, oh, fantastic. I no longer need to take as many. So I think what, whatever state you're in, making changes to your lifestyle does have an impact. But, you know, if I think about some patients I've seen in clinic in the last week, chronic pain. I've seen people with chronic pain for years and by applying some changes to their lifestyle, whether it's dietary changes, whether it's more sleep, and in particular reducing stress, which I think is such a big one, that actually often their pain goes down. So it's also the pain vanishes, although sometimes it does, but often it's gone down by 80%. For somebody suffering with chronic pain, an 80% reduction in pain is huge for their quality of life, right? So, it, and, and sometimes, you know, if anyone listening to this has got chronic pain, I really would encourage you to think about some breathing exercises each day, five minutes a day, either do some yoga or do some sort of deep breathing practices. One of my favorite ones is one that I use in my patients. It's called the three, four, five breath. The idea is really simple. You breathe in for three, you hold for four, and you breathe out for five. Okay, so really easy, very easy to remember. And when you do that, you help to switch off the stress part of your nervous system, and you help to promote relaxation. And I've got a lot of patients who use that to help reduce anxiety, to help with their mood, to help them sleep. But I've got a lot of patients with chronic pain who do that for five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night, and it dramatically reduces how much pain they feel. So, you know, these are a couple of conditions. There's quite a few autoimmune conditions now that we know that you can s often slow down the progression or, or reduce how many symptom flares you get by actively trying to manage your lifestyle. And look, James, I just want to make it clear, I understand that sometimes it's tricky. That sometimes people may, you know, you may be a single parent managing working two jobs with pressures around bills. I get it. Maybe that's more of a priority at the moment than actually breathing twice a day. But I will say, James, and I, I really want to make this point because a lot of people say that lifestyle medicine or looking after yourself with lifestyle is a very privileged thing to do. And it's only the preserve of the affluent or the middle classes. And I want to address this point because a lot of the things being promoted in the wellness space are, are expensive and are out of the reach of many people. 
But pretty much everything, well, not just that I talk about, if I think about my first few books, pretty much everything I recommend is free of charge and accessible to all walks of society. I worked in Oldham, James, for seven years, right in the center of Oldham. It was a very, it's, it's an area that it was commonly regarded as having very low socioeconomic status. A lot of people on social security benefits, low income levels, a lot of uh, fragmented families, a lot of uh, a big sort of immigrant population. You know what? I used these same principles with that population very successfully for seven years because the way you get people to make change in their lifestyle, and I'm sorry for going off on a slight tangent here. No, but please. I, but I, but I think it's really relevant because a lot of doctors would say, oh, Dr. Shasta, you know, all this advice is great, but patients just don't do what I ask them to do. And it's really interesting because, of course, sometimes that does happen. But even the way that's phrased, patients don't do what I've told them to do. That phrase tells you a lot. Nobody does anything that they've been told to do. If you tell me to do something, I may do it for a day or a week. I won't continue with it long term unless I feel I've been involved with that process and I have some agency over it. So the way I interact with my patients, and I teach doctors these principles and we run courses for doctors uh, and other healthcare professionals actually, which is, which is really exciting. We're just opening up to global healthcare professionals and running it online now, which is super exciting. First time we're ever, we're ever gonna do that. But what we do is I always say, connect first, educate second. And I think it's a general good principle for life. Like if, if I've got a patient in front of me and I think I know what's best for them and I don't listen and I tell them what they should be doing in their life, you know what? I'm not that successful. But if I listen to them, if I hear the difficulties and the struggles they have, and then I find some common ground where they know I've heard them and I understand, and if only then I try and give some advice, then patients want to do what you've asked them to do. And I, I honestly have very good compliance with my patients, but that's because I think I spend the time connecting first and educating second. And if you can give people advice that is relevant for them in the context of their life, James, they will do what you've asked them to do. I really do believe that. And um, can, I give you, can I give you an example of that to, to sort of bring it to life at all? Yeah, please. We've got all the time in the world. You know... I, I remember a patient I saw maybe seven or eight years ago, right, in, in my practice. And it was a 42-year-old chap who was struggling with energy, low mood, and was a little bit overweight. You know, frankly, very common issues that people are struggling with these days. And he came to see me, he wanted help. And it's very clear to me that there were a number of factors in his lifestyle that may have been contributing to how he was feeling. And I discussed a number of options with him. And he said, oh, Dr. Shachi, strength training. I really want to do strength training. I used to do it when I was a teenager. I've not done it for years, but I get it. You're going to say it's going to help me with my mood, with my weight, with my energy. I'm in. I said, okay, great. You really want to do that? Brilliant. And he said, what shall I do? Shall I do 40 minutes three times a week? I said, well, sure. Yeah, if you can do that, that'll be amazing. So he walks out, James, with a big smile on his face, full of motivation. Four weeks later, he comes in for a follow-up. And I said, hey, look, how are you getting on? How's the gym? And his body language dropped, right? He had shoulders were rolled in. He looked a bit sheepish. And he said, 
hey, Doc, you know what? Work's been super busy, super stressful. The gym's not on the home, is not on the way either to work or back from work. I just, and it's quite expensive. I've just not managed to do it yet. And I remember James thinking then, I just thought, Rongan, you've clearly not given him advice that he feels is relevant for him in the context of his life. I never thought, why has he not done what I've asked him to do? I thought, Rongan, you've got to do better here. So I took my jacket off and I said, right, I'm going to teach you uh, a strength workout right now. So I taught him these five exercises that I call the classic five. And I taught him how to do them. I modified them for his ability level. You can modify them for any ability level. I said, what do you think? Can you do them? He goes, yeah, that's not too bad. I said, okay, can you manage five minutes in your kitchen twice a week? And he looked at me and he said, what, 10 minutes a week? I said, yeah, can you manage that? He goes, yeah, easy. I said, okay, cool. I'll see you in four weeks. So he goes out a little bit confused, thinking I've only asked him to do 10 minutes a week. Four weeks later, James, he walks in. And I say, you know, how are you getting on? James, his body language was different this time. He had a big beaming smile. His chest was puffed out. He was feeling really, you could see he was feeling pretty good about himself. And he said, hey, Doc, you asked me to do 10 minutes, but I found it so easy and I felt so good afterwards. And I now do it for 10 minutes every evening before I have my evening meal. So he ends up doing 70 minutes of strength training a week because I've broken it down and made it super easy for him. He's continued doing that for well over five years, James, right? He's transformed his life. And that led to what I call the ripple effect. That one change done consistently made him start to feel good about himself because his identity started to change. He wasn't then someone like initially, he was someone who can't follow a health plan. He was reinforcing his identity that, oh, I can't do health. It's too hard. I can't go to the gym. When I made it practical for him, when I broke down all the barriers to entry, he starts doing it and then he starts increasing it, not because I've asked him to, but because he wants to. And now, you know, he eats well, he sleeps well, he gets up every morning and does five minutes of breath work. I would never have gotten to do this stuff seven years ago, never. But by starting small, by making it easy, actionable and relevant to his life, he starts to do it. And James, I can tell you, this is the approach I take with most of my patients. And I've seen consistently that this works. When it comes to health, James, we think it's got to be more complicated than it needs to be. And this is something I, I covered in my last book, Feel Better in Five. I really walk people through how to make new behaviors stick because everyone wants to be healthier, right? It's not as if you can ask anyone on the street and go, hey, look, would you like to be unhealthier than you are now? And no one's going to put their hand up and say yes. Everyone wants to feel better than they currently do. But the problem is we think it's too hard. We think when it comes to health, it's got to be about deprivation and punishment. And it really doesn't. Now, business has got this figured out, right? So Amazon, for example, right? Amazon, when they moved to one-click ordering about five or you know maybe seven years ago now, estimates say their profits went up by $300 million a year. Can you believe that? $300 million a year, right? Why is that? Well, that's because Amazon understand human behavior. They've studied the science as I have, and they know that if you make something easy to do, people do it. So seven years ago, what did you have to do? You had to go to your checkout, confirm your order, put in your card details, confirm again before you place the order. Every single step you take is a reason to back out 
and not do the behavior. Now they've made it so easy that profits are up $300 million. Netflix, YouTube, they use the same science to get you to use their platforms more. They roll one video into the next video. So before you've realized it's midnight, I should probably go to bed now, I need to be up at six, you're into the next episode and you're hooked. And the point I'm trying to make is when it comes to health, we don't apply the same rules. We think it only counts if it's hard, if it's really difficult. But Amazon, no, that's not the way you get people to change their behavior. The way to get most people to change behavior is to start small and make things easy. So what did I do with that patient, James? Right? I, I incorporated so many principles of behavior change in me asking to do five minutes in his kitchen. I made it easy. Because he's like, yeah, five minutes, I can do that. I can't really say I don't have time. I made sure he, he did not have to go to a gym, he did not have to buy any equipment, and he didn't have to get changed. Because that's what I say to patients. I say, look, you don't have to buy anything, you don't have to go to a gym, you don't even need to get changed. I do, for example, James, I do a five-minute strength workout every single morning without fail. It's not because I've got more motivation than anyone else. It's because I understand how you create a new behavior. You make it easy, and you stick it onto an existing habit that you are already doing without thinking. So what do I do every morning? I make a cup of coffee, right? I don't need a reminder. I don't need my PA to phone me. I don't need to put it in my diary. I'm going to make coffee. And I suspect many people listening to this are also going to do that. So what do I do? I weigh out the coffee in the French press, and then I put a timer on for it to brew for four or five minutes. In those four to five minutes, I don't look at Instagram. I don't look at my email. I do a strength workout in my kitchen either body weight or sometimes I use a dumbbell I've got in there. That is just part of my daily routine, just as brushing my teeth is. I don't go to the gym, James. It doesn't fit with my lifestyle. I've not been for a long period of time. But I think I regard myself as being in good shape, and most people would probably regard me as being in good shape. But that comes from a five-minute strength workout every morning. I do it in my pajamas. I don't actually wear sports gear for it. So that I'm, I, I'm just hoping by telling these stories, James, that somebody listening to this goes, oh, yeah, I've tried to work out, but I can never make it stick. Maybe this is the approach that's going to work for me. And, yeah, James, I could keep talking about this stuff, but I, I know I'm sort of going off on it. I'm lots of tangents here, but I, I would really say to people, if you're trying to create a new behavior or if you've tried to create a new behavior in the past, ask yourself two questions. Did you make it easy? Second question is, did you stick it onto an existing habit? And I bet you, for most people who've not managed to make a new behavior stick, they probably didn't follow one of those two principles. No, and I love that. That was a, that was a fantastic tangent. It reminds me of um, I think it's one of the the leadership gurus talked about um, the best the best plan is the one you follow. There's no point having a perfect plan that you don't execute. Or, or I'm paraphrasing, but that those small wins. And I think that what you've done with your podcast, what I'm trying to do with my podcast is the same kind of thing is you, you're leading someone to find the first step of their why. So any sort of wellness change. I mean, there's a perfect example. I'm sitting here with my French press coffee right next to me. So I can relate a hundred percent, but there's no point telling someone, you know, oh, do an hour of exercise if they're not going to do it. And then, and then they're also going to feel even worse about themselves. I'm a failure. Look, I can't even do this. I've got no discipline. I'm, you know, I'm horrible versus a five minute 
you know, workout that's between two things that you know you're going to do anyway. And now when you've achieved that, you feel good. And that sense of, um, you know, well-being, a sense of pride is then going to spur you on and you may or may not even do more than you were told to do or asked to do. Yeah, exactly. And look, what I talk about, James, it, it comes from 20 years of seeing patients, right? So I didn't come out of medical school knowing this stuff. But one thing I've always done is I've learned from my patients. I, I always say that my patients have taught me a lot more than I've taught them. Because if you listen, your patients will tell you what's going on. So I, I've always spent time listening not, not being so in my own head that I think I know what's best. If I've asked them to do something and they're not doing it, I, the only sensible question to me is why? That patient's coming to see me, so that means they, on one level, they want help, yet they're not taking the advice. There's clearly a disconnect somewhere. Am I not communicating it properly? Um, am I not making it relevant for them? Or are they asking for help when they don't really want it? And it can be any one of those things, but I've always been very interested in, in not only the patients who do well, it's the patients who are not doing well or not managing to follow things. And I've, I've, I've studied carefully and observed what the commonalities are. And I've got to say, by and large, it's when we make things too difficult. Now, I will say, James, there is a type of person who can change their life overnight. This tends to be somebody who's had a health scare or gone through a major life event like a divorce or a bereavement or they've lost their job, something so traumatic that it's caused them to rethink everything in their life. Sure, there's many stories like that where people have literally overnight changed their life. Okay, I get that. But for most people who don't have that, actually trying to do that overnight overhaul just doesn't tend to be that successful in the long term. You see this every year in January when people, you know, they try to revolutionize their life with a new diet plan that somehow is going to work this January that never worked for any previous January. And for two weeks, they are sticking to it three weeks. And by the end of January, they've fallen off the wagon. And I think there's some statistic that I think I think 80% of people are no longer following their New Year's resolutions by the first week in Feb or something like that. And that really speaks to what I've just said. Make it small, make it achievable. As you said, the best plan is the one that you do, right? So make it so if all people do, in fact, let's make the ask really clear. If anybody's listening to this show right now, James, and they feel they want to make improvements with their health and well-being, the challenge I make is, have you heard something yet, either on this show or any of your previous podcasts? Or anywhere, maybe it was something you saw on Instagram earlier today, right? How are you going to take that inspiration and turn it into action? Because inspiration alone does nothing, right? It's just an idea. You've got to take action. I said that taking action on everything, choose one thing, one thing that think you're going to benefit, then break it down to the smallest component. Let's say it's meditation, right? And you've heard about 20 minutes a day or 10 minutes a day. Can you do that? Can you honestly do that consistently? Because I've made deals with my patients before that they do one minute, but they commit to me they're going to do one minute a day. So let's say that's somebody listening. They want to start meditating. Right. Choose the time that you honestly feel you can commit, even if that's only one minute a day. Then figure out where are you going to put it in your day. Do not miss that step out. Please think about what is that 
fixed point in your day where you can stick it. For me, it's first thing in the morning. If I don't meditate when I wake up, I don't ever meditate. It's by and large, I've seen that. I know if I don't meditate first thing in the morning, it doesn't happen. It could be with your morning cup of coffee. It could be at the start of your lunch break. It could be the last thing at night. But make sure you have an idea of where that's going to be. And then just try that for a few days, for seven days. Try and do that one minute a day and just see what happens. Because I bet you what will happen is that one minute will lead to two minutes. That two minutes will lead to five minutes. That five will lead to 10 over a period of weeks. But if you start with the goal of 20 minutes a day, what often happens, you do it for three days, for four days, and one day you're busy. You say, I don't have time today. I'll do it later. Later doesn't come. The next day you don't do it. And before you know it, was something that you used to do. I love it. Absolutely love it. I mean, there's areas that I still need to apply that to, you know, myself. Meditation's a me big too, one. Me too, man. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Headspace is something I've loved and I've given it lip service and haven't done it. So I need to find that that um, space in my daily routine to, to put that consistently. Well, this is a good segue to talk about the books. You just released Feel Better in Five and then the other ones are the Four Pillar Plan and the... Um, the stress solution. Stress, I couldn't read my handwriting. I'm sorry about that. Um, Don't worry. <laughs> so tell me about uh, the books and where people can find those. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm on this show, James, to try and give value to you and your audience. You know, for me, I write books to help promote health in as uh, accessible a way as possible. As I say, everything I, I do is about making things simple, making it practical and making it as cheap as possible so people actually can do the behavior. I, although I promote these books, I'm, I'm really not out here to sell books. I want to I wanna sell people the idea that health, that good health is achievable. Um, the books, I think, very much condense what I talk about into very actionable steps, which is why I think they've been so successful. And, you know, here in the UK, the last one, Feel Better and Five, is used by lots of responders, you know, Lots of hospital trusts now in the, in the National Health Service have contacted me saying we're using the Feel Better and Five principles with our patients. Lots of schools have contacted me saying that we're using these principles with our patients because in, with these little five-minute habits, I cover physical health, mental health, and emotional health. And it, for me, it's just a real honor and delight that so many people are finding them practical. So a quick summary, my first what was called the Four Pillar Plan in the UK and around the world, but it's got a different title in America and Canada. It's called How to Make Disease Disappear. This is where I talk about my overall philosophy of health, these four pillars and what we can all do in each one. Second book is called The Stress Solution all around the world. And that's basically, you know, about stress, which is uh, where stress lives in the modern world and what you can do about it. It's very, very practical. And it addresses the point that the World Health Organization say that stress is the health epidemic of the 21st century. Um, so I think that's that's a real deep dive into stress and how to be happier and calmer. And then the final book, Feel Better in Five, is literally about taking everything I've learned in 20 years of practice and putting it into five-minute what I call health snacks. They're not literally snacks that you eat, although one of them is. But lots of there's about 40, I think, five-minute health stats. And I ask people to choose two or three to do a day. One for your mental health, one for your physical health, and one for your emotional health. And I've got to say that the impact that book is having around the world, and you know, it's been out in the US for a few weeks now, and it's just been a delight to see how many people, whether it's health coaches, whether it's Ariana Huffington, who's been raving about the book. 
you know, people who I don't know who are just saying, wow, you've really made something super, super simple. Mark Hyman actually said to me when I was on his podcast, he said, so we're going to have written about 15 books now that I'm so jealous actually of this book. This is the book I wish I'd written because you've just made health about as simple as it can be. So, you know, please, hopefully people got enough value from this, but if they feel they want to learn more, I'd probably point it towards the new one, Feel Better and Fire, because it really, I feel I've simplified health down into, I, I've distilled health down into as little, it's, it's a deceptively simple book. It's basically got everything I know about health and it's condensed into a small amount of space as I possibly can. I've, you know, if, I'm, if in my first or second book, I'd take eight or 10 pages to work up an idea, the challenge in Feel Better and Five was, can you make the same case in one page? What is the absolute essence of what you're trying to say? Put that in and no more. So hopefully that's a bit of a bit of an overview for people. Yeah, well, I can attest as well. You were kind enough to send me a copy of the book. And actually, I'm gonna, they offered to send a paperback as well, which I'm going to ask for because I'm very old-fashioned in the, <laughs> in the, too, the way I read. Um, but it was, it was exactly like you said. It was fantastic. And for so many of us that always seem to bite off more that we can chew with our planned wellness changes, it, it spoon-feeds it. And I mean that in a, in a very positive way, not a patronizing way, but it just gives you little bites, you know, the bites of the elephant, as they say. And to able to just just flick through and say, all right, oh, I didn't realize this food actually deregulates my my nervous system as well. There's all those little nuggets in there that I think are invaluable. So I, I thought it was a fantastic book. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that, James. And uh, yeah, if you have any problems getting hold of the paper, let me know. We'll get a copy sent out to you. Beautiful. And actually, I just finished writing a book. I want to send that to you. So we'll discuss that in a moment when we're done recording. Oh, um, I can't wait. So yeah, that sounds great. Brilliant. So the first of the, the closing questions, we talked about your books. Is there a book that you've read that you love to recommend to people? Wow. One book. Um, or it can be it can be a few, but it doesn't have to be related to what we talked about either. Any book at all? Yeah, I think there are there are there are so many. I'm trying to your audience is mostly in the in the US, right? As well. So I'm trying to make sure it's one that's people can get over there. One that I've really been mesmerized with over the summer, and it's a book by someone called Dr. Pippa Grange called Fear Less, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself. It's just incredible. I know it's in the UK. Is that out the US? I hope it is. It's basically from this psychologist who has worked with the England rugby team, the England uh, football or soccer team. She was widely credited with getting them to the semifinals at the last World Cup. She's such a humble individual, and she basically makes the case beautifully how fear affects all of us and how fear holds us back from doing the things that we want to live our best life. I think that's an incredible book. So I definitely would encourage people to get that book. Um, what else? I, it's an old one, but I, I think as, I've not read it in a few years, but. There's a book called, a lot of people will know, The 4-Hour Workweek from Tim Ferriss. Yes. And that was life-changing for me. And why it was life-changing, not because I want to work four hours a week, but because it helped me understand that time is the most precious commodity we've got. And how do you use your time effectively? So for me, that lesson has really stayed with me, that time has a value 
And often we don't recognize that value. We give away our time freely to other people and other things that are not serving us. And it just helps me. So although it's over 10 years old, if, if someone hasn't read that, I'd probably recommend they give that a read. Absolutely. That's, that's someone I'm sure you would love to get as well. But I think Tim Ferriss would be a great interviewee. Oh, for sure. He's definitely on my list of people I'm trying to get at some point. <laughs> All right, and then um, Dr. Pippa Grange sounds like she'd be fascinating as well. Yeah, for sure. I think you'd enjoy talking to her as well. So anyway, so see what you think of the book. Um, but I think those two, there's many more. I think I'm a big fan of Gabal Mate books. Gabal Mate talks a lot about the impacts of stress and trauma on our body, on our emotions, on our health. Uh, I think you know, those books are well worth reading. And if people just want an intro into Gabal Mate, I'd probably recommend just go to YouTube and look up a few of his lectures just to give you a bit of a taste of what he stands for. But I think that's pretty life-changing stuff for people as well. Yeah. Well, I heard you interview him, Johan, and all kinds of people on your podcast, uh, Feel Better, Live More. So again, a, a shout out to that. I think it's it's very, very powerful. And, and you have so many kind of uh, parallel interests that I do. And some of the guests that you've had are incredible. So I applaud your podcast as well. Oh, thanks, man. All right. So then um, very quickly, is there a film that you love? Is there a film that I love? Um yeah, there are actually. Um, I guess, can I say a documentary? Yeah, please. And I, I'm going to say, I've only seen it in the last week. Like I, we're recording this on what, Thursday? I saw it on Saturday on Netflix on Saturday evening with my wife. I, I don't know if you've seen it or yet. Or, I don't know if you've seen it yet or not, but it's called The Social Dilemma. I just watched it two days ago. Amazing. I just thought it was one of the most impactful documentaries I've ever seen. I've not been able to stop thinking about it since. It kind of reinforced concerns that I've had over social media for a period of time, particularly for children. And I think it's done really well. It just makes you think and reflect on your own usage, on your children's usage, and the wider implications for society. So... I would highly, highly recommend people watch it just to empower and sort of educate themselves. I couldn't agree more. And then the people that they've got speaking are, you know, founders and the the top people in the social media world prior to, to where they are now, where they kind of pulled out for ethical reasons. So it's not like they've got a bunch of people whining about social media. These are some of the founders of the platforms that we use. Yeah, people who created the algorithms and now they're seeing the downside of it. So Definitely worth watching, I would say. Absolutely. Okay, next question. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on the podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and medical personnel of the world? Yeah, I would recommend Dr. Pippa Grange, um, the lady who I've just spoken about who wrote the book Fear Less. I think that she is so sought after in so many different areas because her tools, I think, are widely applicable to sports teams, to first responders, to any walk of life, frankly. So I have no, um, no hesitation in recommending her. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. The last question then before we underline where people can find you online. What do you do? To, <clears throat> excuse me. What do you do to decompress? Yeah. So my routine changes from week to week, depending on what else is going on. I've just submitted... Uh, my manuscript for my fourth book. So that has been six months of, you know, hard work getting that done. So I'm looking forward to being able to indulge myself in some more kind of relaxation practices over the next few weeks. 
But by and large, what stays the same, I always have a morning routine. Like, so I will always do a few things each morning. And, I, and actually, I wrote about this in The Stress Solution. I call it the three M's of a morning routine. So this can work whether you have five minutes or an hour, right? So I, like with everything, I want to make it accessible to everybody. And I feel a good morning routine ideally should have three components, mindfulness, movement, and mindset. So I start up each day with either a five-minute meditation or a five-minute uh, breathwork practice, which I'll I literally come down in my pajamas downstairs. I'll sit in my living room, and for five minutes, or actually 10 at the moment, I will do some meditation or breathwork. Then I will go and put coffee on, and during the five minutes it's brewing, I do a five-minute workout. Then I'll sit with my coffee with a book, so some sort of positive book that I'm enjoying, just to get my mind in the right place for the day. So that's how I start every day, almost always. And the days when I don't, I'm just more reactive. I'm less calm. I'm less productive. So I've learned over a period of time not to beat myself up when I don't do it, but just to observe what happens. So I know I'm a better doctor, I'm a better husband, I'm a better father when I've taken those 15 or 20 minutes for myself first thing in the morning. So that's one thing I do. I'll go for a walk pretty much every day for at least half an hour. In fact, that's, got to, that's probably a new habit from lockdown. You know, when we were all locked down and we, we made it a habit with the family of going out for a good walk for a half an hour every day, ideally in nature, that is something I've kept going, even though you know, lockdown isn't anywhere near as stringent as it was certainly here in the UK. Um, I think those are the main things that I do. You know, I, I, I like going for a run or a bike ride a few times a week if I can, but there's no real set pattern to that. I, the other thing I really, really uh, am pretty diligent on now, I stop eating two to three hours before bed. I have tracked this. I've used monitors to track this. And when I eat late, even if it's healthy food, my heart rate stays higher for longer at night. And when I saw the data, I was like, oh, wow. So again, I thought I was okay, even though I knew it wasn't the best thing to do. But I've seen literally with my biological data that when I eat earlier, I sleep better and I'm more refreshed. So those are, those are probably the main things I'm working on at the moment. Brilliant. Yeah, I love it. I have a morning routine as well. And I, I, absolutely the same. If I, if I adhere to it, and I mean, you know, organically adhere, not force myself, then it absolutely sets me up for the day. And even like you said, the daylight, but I, I walk my dog when my son goes to school. So I get that immediate daylight first thing in the morning and it absolutely sets you up for the day. Oh, fantastic. Brilliant. All right. So then for people listening, how can they find you online and where's the best place to get the books? Yeah, look, um, the books are available everywhere. They're available on Amazon. If you do have a local independent bookstore, hopefully they've got it there. It's always good to support local independent bricks and mortar stores, I feel. But yes, if you have an Amazon account, you can pretty much get it all over the world on Amazon now. Uh, just for, a lot of people ask this, but yes, they are available in the paperback, but also in ebook. And all of them are available in audiobook, which I narrate as well. Um, in terms of finding me, I'm pretty easy to find online. I guess the best place social media wise is probably Instagram or Twitter. So I'm at Dr. Chatterjee on Instagram, which is D-R-C-H-A-T-T-E-R-J-E-E. -E. And same on Twitter. I'm just at Dr. Chatterjee UK on Twitter. Or I release a weekly podcast every Wednesday called Feel Better, Live More, which you can find on pretty much every podcast app. Brilliant. And then the website? 
Uh, my website is drchatterjee.com. There's lots of blogs and resources on there. So yeah, wherever people find value, uh, come and find me on there and you know, always send me a message. I, I love to hear from people. Beautiful. Well, I want to say thank you so much. I think I first came across you when you had Sabrina on and it was right when I was about to interview her as well. So I think we did it around the same time. So I'd listened to, I believe I'd listened to your podcast first or vice versa, but regardless. And, and then, um, you know, I saw you had Johan on and then my mom had sat next to a bloke on, on a plane who she had mentioned that I had a podcast and he said, Oh, you should, you know, he should listen to this, this gentleman. And it was you. So it's so amazing that we're finally able to have this conversation, but I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I've really, really enjoyed this. Hey, no problem. And thanks so much, James, for inviting me. And uh, anything I can do to help you and your audience in the future, please do let me know.